This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. Recently, I've had uh, um, some uh, physical trouble, which I think is uh, probably uh, sciatica. Uh, I, I don't know. Some of you may have experienced that. It's uh, it's actually uh, quite painful. Fortunately, not all the time. Uh, and then uh, last night, I was uh, reading in um, a, a, a new volume of uh, translation from the great uh, Tibetan master Tsongkhapa. And there's a reference in the introduction to uh, Shantideva's famous text, the Bodhisattva Charyavatara. And um, uh, there's a verse in there where he says something like, uh, I think at the conclusion of uh, the famous uh, ninth chapter, which is concerning emptiness. And... um, I must I should I must try to look up the Sanskrit, but the, the English is, is kind of cute. It basically it winds up saying uh, if if no one's there, then uh, who is there to be insulted? Who is there to be injured? Who is there to be to be ill? and so forth. So when the, uh, the uh, intuitive apprehension of emptiness is established, basically that's the end of suffering. And that's uh, the, the effective equivalent of what uh, the Abhidharmists have called Saupadisesa um, nirvana, that is, it's nirvana, but there's the uh, remainder of a body, and that's all there is. So I, um, uh, I uh, had to uh, admit to myself that. Um, I, uh, I think I'm looking forward to a great deal more practice before such a vision becomes established. Because right now, physical suffering, you know, I don't think it's anything to be trivialized. Uh, uh, in this uh, context, by the way, um, uh, Tsongkhapa uh, is, is talking about the, uh, the developing practice of the, this, the truth of emptiness. And the way it was described, I realized he was simply, he was reverting to the very, very old description of the three um, types, I guess you could say, of uh, wisdom, which I think a lot of you have heard of. Um, There's uh, wisdom based on hearing, which is when you hear a, a teaching and it enters your consciousness. There's wisdom based on reflection as you turn the teaching over and over uh, and study it intellectually from every angle and how it appears in your daily life. 
And then there is uh, the wisdom of meditative cultivation where uh, the teaching has uh, entered the deepest level of our inner practice and begins to ex express itself outwardly through us. And uh, I, I was encouraged by the reminder that all three of these flavors of wisdom are, are uh, indispensable. So whereas maybe all of us, or, or I don't know, I, would like to race all the way to the third type, that is bhavana, maya, pragna, that is wisdom based on meditative cultivation. Just hearing the teaching is already a type of pragna, a type of wisdom. And then taking in the teaching and reflecting on it, that too is an indispensable flavor. Uh, even though the, um, the uh, maybe what, the most refined flavor is based on meditative cultivation. All three are indispensable. So I think all of you have heard the teaching of emptiness, which um, at least for uh, Tsongkhapa and his friends and others is the, the quintessence of Buddha Dharma. So wherever you are with that, whether you just heard it today or you heard it you know, long ago and it's part of your apprehension of the world and your experience of yourself, or maybe you are actually uh, in the world in the state known as Saupadishesha Nirvana, it is appropriate to rejoice and give thanks. So our, our, uh, our karma has brought us to a point where we encounter these teachings and can practice together. And this already means that uh, all of us, all of you are well along on the path. And unless you are, you are inspired to become a war criminal, probably you will stay on this path and continue to, um, I guess we could say, ascend. So congratulations and joy to all, all of us. Um, of course, this is one, I don't know, one stream or one line of inheritance or one take on Buddha's teaching. But it is, uh, for me, it is the most compelling. And then, of course, the question is, well, then how do we, how do we uh, put that into practice? And this uh, came to my mind because I recently heard uh, some uh, criticism of um, our, uh, not so much our lineage, but of the, um, the overall uh, approach known as Zen or Chan. And I was startled because the source of this criticism was someone whom, whom I shall not name, but who I thought would know better. Uh, but this person apparently does not. This is someone who um, uh, has or had some substantial experience of uh, Zen practice and then for whatever reason uh, decided that um, uh, vipassana was the best approach and while i had no uh, no quarrel with that i was very surprised that that had led to uh, this uh, uh, criticism 
and it's one that uh, is somewhat familiar actually already, but I just did not expect to hear it from this particular person. But anyway, the criticism is that the um, vipassana approach uh, is very superior because it gives people a uh, highly specific program with um, reliable milestones and uh, methods of assessing a person's, uh, for want of a better word, progress. And um, the critique was that, well, but you Zen people, you just sort of kick people into the deep end and let them thrash around. I must say I was, I was uh, offended by that. And I, I actually thought uh, that's simply wrong. That is, actually I called it specious sectarian nonsense. And I, I still think that's what it is. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think some of you are familiar with the, uh, the Vipassana programmed approach. And of course it goes uh, hand in hand with the notion for many people that the teachings contained in the Pali Canon are the original words of Shakyamuni Buddha. And uh, I have been obliged to regard that as uh, what might be called um, justification by faith because there is no historical basis for such a claim. Uh, someone, uh, uh, another uh, person in, in that uh, tradition um, uh, who uh, uh, does some uh, translating from the Pali uh, reasoned that um, well, it's true, Buddha did not speak Pali, but he must have spoken another Middle Indic language. Therefore, what's, what's in the Pali uh, represents the, uh, I don't know, what did he say? Uh, cultural, religio, philosophical milieu that Buddha lived in. Again, more justification through faith, you know, because uh, 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 this person did not mention that Buddha quite certainly uh, spoke and was familiar with Sanskrit, and that when his audience was a bunch of Brahmins, he spoke to them in Sanskrit. And uh, the relationship between Pali and probably what Buddha spoke, which was some flavor of Magadhi from that region, is not at all established. The speakers of Pali probably were a long way from there. And as I think we've said, the Pali that we have today, the, the so-called Pali canon, can be dated to no earlier than the fourth century, nearly a thousand years after Buddha's time. So I'm mentioning this to contextualize some of this back and forth as, um, uh, again, justification through faith and, and not very constructive and makes it hard to actually see how we function in the milieu of Dharma study and Dharma practice in a way that we can easily be mutually supportive of one another. Um, 
Also, I heard uh, to my surprise that uh, two, two colleagues of mine, one of them, my, my Dharma brother, uh, the, the uh, redoubtable Reverend Taigen Layton, known to me as Brother Gen, uh, he had been approached by someone from a, a Chinese Chan lineage who wanted to uh, get together with his Sangha and have a debate. And this came up in the, in the seminar with my teacher yesterday. And then another uh, uh, colleague, um, uh, Kanjin Galen Godwin from Austin said, oh, me too. <laughs> now, I don't know what this person's purpose is. Uh, this person has not come to Hartford Street Zen Center and insisted on having a debate. And if the person does, I, I, um, I would want to know what was the point of that and why instead we would not be engaged in finding ways to encourage each other's practice. Now, both Brother Gen and... Um, uh, Brother Jin, or rather, sorry, Sister Jin, uh, said that uh, it didn't really turn into much of a debate, but it was more like a kind of a, uh, a conversation. And uh, they both thought that maybe that was helpful in its way. So that was a relief. But um, uh, I guess, personally, I would say I would rather find ways for us to encourage each other and not criticize each other's way of practice. Now, for instance, what about this notion that all we do is kick people into the, into the pool in the deep end and let them drown? It's like, you know, that is not true. I actually, I actually um, I stumbled across a, a secret document, which was a sort of, um, a instructor's manual for uh, the Vipassana uh, tradition. I don't know exactly where it came from uh, or where it dates from, but one could see the uh, various approaches and the milestones and the tests and so forth. And I was reminded of the um, the uh, militancy of certain psychoanalysts who are absolutely convinced that their process of engaging with the analysand, the, the patient, is completely and utterly objective and involves nothing more than the dispassionate and accurate assessment on the part of the analyst of the inner life of the analysand. And uh, um, I, I found it extraordinary that anybody could actually believe that. Compared to the notion that actually the analyst and the analysand are engaged in what may be a, a, uh, a helpful, uh, a, a useful way of mutually constructing a world together. It has nothing to do with the supposedly objective scientific assessment of whatever mess the analysand brings to the analyst. It's a process of mutual world building. And to a, an important degree, it is also between Buddhist teacher and student. And how that unfolds is a matter of any number of factors. One of them, of course, is the tradition which is being drawn from. But uh, for instance, um, 
I've had uh, many experiences in Zazen, as I'm sure um, you have also. And one of the milestones uh, in this manual <laughs> was something like, uh, let's see, at this stage, the, um, the student should report a sensation of uh, ants crawling all over his body. <laughs> So the possibility that uh, the uh, teacher or the instructor has that in mind and in so doing, uh, without realizing it, influences the experience of the student is inescapable. Because from my point of view and my experience, that's how things work. So how about our instructions in uh, the Zen world. Do we just kick people into the deep end and leave them? No, no, we don't. Well, then how does instruction happen? And I was immediately struck when I heard this, this critique. It's like, well, I, you know, I, I, um, well, let's see, will I claim to have an answer to that question? Well, yes, I will claim to have an answer to that question. And the answer is, it's actually body to body. It is body to body. This is my experience. I'm quite sure this was my teacher's experience. And what I mean by that is the so-called teacher's body and the student's body are both instruments. They are both instruments. And both the teacher and the student play music together, so to speak. And entering into that relationship over a period of time means that the student allows the teacher in one sense or another to uh, say something about the, the melody, how it's coming out. And the teacher knows in his or her body how the score is unfolding how the piece of music is coming forth. And sooner or later, I believe the student also experiences that way. So the instruction is not from a list of milestones. The instruction is sitting face to face and listening to the music. And if one does not trust that process, well, then that is not for that person. But if one experiences that process, I think one is easily, one can easily fall in love with it. I know I did. And sitting face to face with my teacher in the, in the Dokusan room, so to speak, listening to this, what I've heard the called the inaudible fragrant stream was really quite something. And that is every bit as much an instruction as is the student experiencing ants crawling all over his or her body. So I, I was just surprised because I expected the uh, criticizer to know that. Now, of course, there are other styles. What about the uh, style of using uh, words or phrases from, from Zen stories as a uh, uh, focus, an intensive concentration? What about that? Well, that too comes in for some sectarian bias, I'm sorry to say. There are, uh, there are colleagues of mine in the, uh, the national clergy organization, or so does in priests, uh, who, who think that uh, our style of teaching needs to be reformed 
And we need to reintroduce, note, reintroduce the um, practice of Kwato uh, inspection or koan introspection. And the first time I heard that, I was startled and thought, reintroduce, reintroduce? When did we ever do that? Turns out there is no evidence that uh, at least in the style um, that we've become acquainted with thanks to the efforts of Dogen's NG, there is no evidence that uh, Dogen ever used that approach with his students, not ever. So this would not be a reintroduction, obviously, this would be an introduction and not a very helpful one from what I have seen. I, I was reminded uh, yesterday, um, my teacher said, yeah, Katagiri Roshi, whom some of you know, probably, I don't know if any of you know Katagiri Roshi. Uh, ah, good, some of you did. Anyway, he would sometimes tell people, you know, if you go down that path of Huato practice or Hato practice in Japanese, you may find you are not able to speak, sorry, you're not able to um, appreciate the actual meaning of just sitting. And I have observed that to be the case sometimes. There are uh, persons who it seems like have not been able to um, uh, drink deeply of that, that living water. Uh, because there's the, the uh, I don't know what to say, is the overhanging rock formation of this other style that has obscured, for some reason, obscured the, uh, the deep nature of Shikantasa. So again, uh, one hears this critique from time to time that, uh, oh, uh, poor Soto Zen needs to uh, introduce or reintroduce Guato practice. And uh, I must say, I, I do not find that helpful. Surely there's a way for us to, all of us to collaborate on the practice of Buddha Dharma in a way that everyone feels like their, their entry into the path of Buddha Dharma is a blessing. And the restless search for the perfect Dharma technology can be abandoned because there is no such thing. If there were such a thing, we'd know by now. The earth would be filled with the, the uh, radiance of those who had found the, the uh, perfect Dharma technology, the true one, the true Dharma technology. And they'd be wandering around blessing everyone and, and uh, stimulating enlightenments and so forth. And I don't see that happening. Maybe I just missed something, but I don't see it. So, uh, the, the point of this harangue is to suggest that um, we, we take refuge in the path as it's unfolding in front of us. And 
consider our, our meetings with our teachers and our fellow practitioners as a genuine blessing and not worry about finding the right technology. If you feel like your karma is drawing you to another expression, well, that's fine. That's okay. But then it would be good not to turn around and say, well, those guys back there I was practicing with, they're just a you know, bunch of idiots. They've got the wrong. They've got the wrong end of the the ox, or something. Because that simply isn't true. And now that all of you have encountered the teaching of emptiness in all three flavors, um, please, please uh, continue feel encouraged to continue and blessed to continue. And um, oh, what about then, what about uh, uh, Tsongkhapa, of course, was a great uh, tantric master, among other things. So, so what about that? Is that, is that the supreme technology? Well, uh, Tsongkhapa says, you know, when it comes to emptiness, tantra doesn't really add anything to that teaching. Where, where Tantra comes in is the experience of emptiness becomes equated with the clear light of bliss. And that's kind of cool, maybe. But as he says, this adds nothing to the teaching of emptiness. That is still the supreme, sublime Dharma. Still, I suppose, you know, a clear light of bliss, that sounds pretty good, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the thing to do. But it's all right, when you die, you'll encounter that anyway, however, however briefly. <laughs> so be prepared to seize, no, not seize, to enter completely into that moment. And then, well, we won't be seeing you again, unless, of course, the Bodhisattva vow carries you back into our midst, which would be nice to see you again. One, one last bit of this harangue and then I'll stop, I promise. Um, I discovered a number of um, uh, YouTube videos from, I'm not entirely sure who they are. They appear to be a, uh, a substantial number of um, uh, very, very conservative Roman Catholics who have a number of, I must say, quite beautiful uh, seminaries here and there. There's, there's a few in the United States. Well, there's actually more than one of, of these groups. First, I thought there was, it's all the same, but it's actually more than one, and they don't all necessarily get along. <laughs> anyway, uh, one of such group has this very beautiful um, uh, seminary in Italy, it looks like, like, how do they manage that? I don't know. Anyway, it's this beautiful building. And there's something like 90 seminarians there, 90 young men from all over the world. About, uh, I think they said 30 of them from the U.S. And they have these videos, you know, and they'll introduce, the, the, the seminarians will introduce themselves, say, hello, I'm Abe. They use this French word, which I thought, that's very strange, Abe. Anyway, I'm Abe Joe Blow from, you know, St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm in my fifth year. They have a seven-year curriculum. They're a seven-year curriculum. And I went, why, why? You know, well, why stop there? Why not be like the Jesuits and go for 12? Anyway, that also includes four years of theology. And I thought, who, who are they going to be ministering to that they need four years of theology for? But anyway, I'm, I'm watching their, uh, you know, their, their daily life which includes the most elaborate 
expression of Catholicism I've seen, uh, e even going beyond what I grew up with in the 1950s as a kid, Catholic kid, you never saw so much lace, you know, lace sleeves and, and, and magnificent vestments and clouds of incense, and you never saw so many candles. You know? And they do this every day, right? And, and I'm watching it and I'm thinking, you know, yeah, it's kind of beautiful, but I kept, I had this uneasy feeling over and over. I would say, yeah, it's beautiful, but it's like they are taking refuge in maximum formality and elaborateness. And I thought, was that the point? Is that what Jesus came to us to tell us about? So once again, it's like, oh, we have the, the formula, you know, which includes everything in, putting everything in Latin and burning a lot of candles and you know, seven years seminary training and, and, and uh, those cassocks that button all the way down the front, you know, which those went out, I don't know how long ago, but anyway, they're bringing them back. And together with that, a extremely right-wing politics. So I thought, now that's a toxic mixture if ever I heard one. Maximum refuge, taking refuge and maximum formality plus right-wing politics. Like, oh, I don't know about that. That's not what Buddha meant by going for refuge. I think this is what Buddha meant by Shila Vrata Para Marsha, that is reliance on um, precept and vow as all that's necessary for, for liberation. So anyway, now that I've, I've uh, criticized all the critics, <laughs> I wonder if you have any questions or complaints this morning. Akedo-san. I, I do I have a comment and unfortunately complaint, but I'll let you respond to my complaint. Uh, I, I do appreciate what I had heard the Dalai Lama say, whatever path makes you a good person, that's the right path for you. I keep thinking, you know, whoever can live through the hell that's going on in India right now and be helpful and compassionate and loving and do what they can do to get through that, that's, they're on the right path, whatever that path is. I've, I've been thinking a lot about that lately, but I have to be honest, and I'm glad I'm not there in person, so you can't hit me with that stick, but um, when, when Dogen Zenji says he has the best path that's one of the reasons I sometimes want to close his book and put it down and walk away from it. And I understand the financial needs of the time to be funded with other competing, you know, Buddhist, you know, um, organizations, but, uh, but it's always very hard for me to swallow that whenever we read those words. Yeah. That's one of my, my chief complaints probably about it. Well, yeah, I think you're right. And there's definitely marketing going on in there. And given his precarious position in Japan at the time, uh, I yeah I um, I kind of wish he wouldn't do that. Also, but I can understand why. Uh, also, he doesn't exactly say, you know, my path is the best, and throw all that other stuff out. He says stuff like he talks about his teacher, the you know the old Buddha, for instance, or he presents old stories that everyone else has also heard in the context of his particular take on practice. Uh, and once in a while, he will uh, be a little harsh towards usually uh, persons in previous generations of, of uh, teachers. But uh, uh, if there's marketing going on, I don't find it particularly crude marketing. I guess I would say that much. Um, Maybe my understanding or my interpretation is a little too 
harsh and what is being conveyed. And just every time we read where, where he kind of talks about it being a sort of the correct path or something, I, I always have a hard time with that. I can't. He does, he does I, say. I, Sorry. All right, go ahead. Oh no, I'm done. Sorry, I, 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 I'm I'm very loosely quoting. I haven't I haven't read it, and as you yeah, know from the right. hour, I haven't read it real recently. Yeah, he does say um, uh, it is necessary to meet a true teacher. He does say that, and um, but he's usually he's fairly careful about dismissing the teachings of others. Once in a while, in certain contexts. But mostly what he'll say is that my teacher, the old Buddha, Tiantong Rujing, you know, he had, he, had, he had it on the ball. That was, he was really great. Mostly he'll do that. And I, I, I guess I'm sort of okay with that. Um, I tend to feel like my teacher was really on the ball and his teaching is really great. And I, as I said, I will be thankful to my last breath for having encountered it. But that's as much as I'll say. It's as much as as much marketing as I will. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't bother me. Maybe I, you know, I should be more specific. I'll let me look again at that text and yeah. see the ones and then present them to you and get your view on them. That might help that yeah. might help me not feel so, you know, have some negative feelings there. I'd be happy to. Yes, David. Um, as far as this feeling of being thrown in at the deep end of the pool, I think from a beginner's point of view, mm -hmm. it can seem like that. If you have like no experience, maybe you've never read anything about Buddhism, or you, you know, of course, and then whatever, why in the world would you come to something like Soto Zen? But nevertheless. Sometimes some people do come to it with little or no experience or reading or anything. Mm -hmm. And it was certainly my experience for a while of feeling that I was floundering in the deep end of the pool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, the, the, I guess you could call it a, an elemental teaching that was given to us over and over and over again. It's like, return to your breath, return to your posture. So so that was the saving grace. Mm -hmm. the, the floundering may still be going on, but as you're floundering, you're, you, you notice you're floundering or whatever. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So I, I just wanted to put that up out there because I, I think more I'm not the only one that had that experience. I'm sure. Well, um, I had a similar experience, and that uh, in, that prompted me to go to Zen Center and and ask Suzuki Roshi about it. So I did, and what happened then in that Dokusan room was that what I'm talking about this body instruction. Uh, the first part of our our talk together, he. You know, he, he told me my prostration was wrong and he showed me how to do a prostration. And, and then he wanted to know what I was studying in, in university. And um, he dismissed my question about, is there some way to test whether I'm doing it right? He just laughed at that. <laughs> and then so we chatted a while and then he said, okay, now let's sit. And we just, he just sat there. We sat there doing Zazen for, I don't know how long it was. It felt like an hour. I'm sure it wasn't. And I would steal, I would peek, peek at him a little bit. You know, it's like, what's he doing? You know, he wasn't doing anything. And that, that body to body rhapsody uh, is, is still there. It entered my body without my realizing, without my knowing what the hell was happening. Uh, and it was years before I recognized it. Mm -hmm. But that was like, that was the rudder, right? That was, okay, this is how not to flounder. This is how not to flounder. And it entered, the, entered this body and, and remained there. So that's why this experience of encountering the teacher and allowing that 
well, I don't know, symphonic process to develop and express itself is so important because that is that takes the place of, well, okay, let's go down the list and see if you've gotten to ants crawling yet. That's our way, you might say. So there, there is the sense of floundering and then there's something else. I guess I'd put it that way. Any other questions or complaints? Janos has used the advanced technology of the digital hand. Oh, okay. By all means, Janos. Yes. So thank you, Reverend Mew, uh, for the Dharma talk. I uh, really uh, just uh, resonated with it in terms of uh, finding what speaks to this body-mind. And that certainly was, has been my, my experience as well as with finding a student teacher and my um, uh, first teacher of uh, Tundra Wind and uh, resonating, you know, with him and the study of, uh, of the Dharma and then uh, going through the precepts. Um, and sitting, you know, with the, my first circle, uh, it just sort of came through what uh, one's, what's emptiness speaks to me of. Uh, and my question is, is that uh, more kind of uh, going back to philosophy, that, well, the question, let me just put that out there, that I agree, I don't think there is a, a technology, you know, of this is the way. And so many uh, perennial philosophies through the centuries have come, this is the way, and, and finding a technology to do that. Uh, and it, it always seems to come down to, you know, the individual and the student teacher's uh, uh, experience of of that uh, enlightenment. Um, so, and yet, well, I guess the question is: is that is there also part of this uh, a dynamic transformation of the Dharma that is a continual process? That you know there is. As they say in philosophy, there's the thesis, then there's the antithesis, then there's the synthesis. So that, you know, you, you might study a certain process and say, oh, you know, that was really helpful for a while. And there's something that's not resonating for me, you know, in my, in my and so I, I, I'm going to criticize that. And maybe I'm going to seek, you know, hear a different school or something. And then, oh, that seems to risen. And that isn't quite it either. And then you come in to say, ah, oh, wow, it's all coming together here for me. So that, you know, and that that process changes, I'm sure our Buddhist Dharma is different from 6th century BC Shakyamuni. I, I, I question this sort of originality. Oh, we are the, you know, uh, uh, orthodox way. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to the sort of the dynamism of the, the process of which we are engaging here in the 21st century, that it continues to grow. Yeah. Uh, well, I can certainly quote this temple's founder who said in my hearing and David's hearing that Buddhism is something we make up as we go along. And that is still, that is definitely the case. And of course, there are, there are gems of the teaching that we carry with us, but how we express that as society and the world changes around us uh, that changes all the time. Mm. And if it doesn't, then as, as I said before, then we're just in a museum. You know, nothing living is happening anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was part of my worry about that seminary back there. You know, is it just going to be a museum? 
you know, where is the living water for those people? So I was like, I don't know, maybe it's all fine, but if it's not alive, I'm not interested. Thank you so much. Well, um, perhaps that's enough. Oh, yes, maybe that's long enough now. And uh, please enjoy those three flavors of wisdom that you are constantly engaging with. And uh, let the teaching of emptiness sink in deeper and deeper. And uh, uh, I don't know. Um, I guess Tsongkhapa says, uh, you know, suddenly it bears fruit. So even there in that tradition, there's this notion of a sudden ripening. And it's already affected your life and will continue to do so. So please trust that and um, uh, continue your, your practice of whatever flavor. Oh, you see Ron, did you want to throw something in there? Yes, thank you. Uh, for your slower students, uh, could you recap those three oh, again? Numbers? Uh, there, well, I'll skip the Sanskrit and just say there's uh, so-called herd wisdom, that is not, not as in herd immunity, but H-E-A-R-D, uh, hearing the teaching, right, encountering the teaching, that's one. The second one is considering or turning the teaching around in one's mind over and over, examining it from various angles, putting it to the test, right? That's the second. The third one is meditative cultivation. So I haven't talked about how sitting in zazen is the, the proper expression of reality, which that is to say, the expression of emptiness. And uh, cultivating in that way is this third flavor of wisdom. And the three of them together will uh, produce the fruit. Is that, does that do? Okay. Thank you. Thank you all very much. All right.